Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 82. Your mental health needs to be in line and you need to be focused. So if you're having problems with your marriage, with your kids, if you're having financial problems, if you hate your job, if whatever is going on, get that taken care of. Because if you don't, your business is not going to thrive. It's probably just going to end up becoming another problem. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating costs. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating costs. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. We have a wonderful show for you today. We have Meg Grisky. She is a fellow Oklahoman. She, a few years ago, was Greg Judy's intern. And we follow her path to what she's doing now and what she will be doing in the future. I think it's a really good episode, and I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get to Meg, 10 seconds about my farm. Maybe a little bit longer than 10 seconds today. Last week, I told you we did blood test to do pregnancy checking on my herd. Got the results back and 
it didn't go real well. A much lower pregnancy percentage than I was hoping, much lower. When I think about the cause, my cows came out of winter, kind of thin, but they didn't have till May. And by May, they had built back up enough body condition that I was good with them. I thought we were in good shape. The target or the target in my mind is a body condition score of six at calving. And then, you know, I have some cows that, where I've got like a two-year-old heifer that's really got pulled down. So I expected her to be open. Cows aren't fleshy, but they're in good condition. There's some that are fleshy. I do know with doing May calving, that puts breeding season during hot weather in Oklahoma. Two South Pole bulls, same two I used last year. Both of them basically got the same percentage because I had one with my red herd and one with my Corientes, and then I combined them. One area that I was lacking this year that I did not do as good a job as I usually do, and it may be the main reason right here, I didn't do a good job with my mineral program. I've been thinking I will go to Free Choice Minerals, and I just haven't done it yet. So not that that's a reason, but I didn't have minerals out in front of them like I should have. I really think with the pregnancy rate I got, it's a multi, multiple factors that I'm going to try and figure out. But the real question is, where do I go now? In fact, hop on over to the Grazing Grass Community. I'll post a question there. Love to get all your feedback. I have a plan in place that I've thought about and debated, and I have it in place, but I'm interested to see what you think I should do where, with those cows that came back open. So jump over to the Grazing Grass community and leave your comments there. Let's talk to Meg. Meg, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass podcast. We're excited you're here today. I very much appreciate the invite. I have only done one podcast before this, and I hope to do many more in the future. Actually, if I think back, this is the third one. I was on Working Cows in 2020, and then I was on the Ruminants, I believe, in 2014 or 2015. It was a while ago. A lot of you may know me as Meg Griskevich from the Stockman Grass Farmer. Very good. Ruminants really predate a lot of the podcasts. That's a, a while ago for podcasts. Meg, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? So I grew up in the Great Lakes area. And whenever I say that, people think and I mean Wisconsin or Minnesota, but really the east side of the Great Lakes. And I did not grow up in agriculture at all. I got involved as a high schooler. I joined 4-H and FFA, and I ended up going to college for agriculture. I went to West Virginia University, got an animal science degree and an ag business minor. And when I was there, I heard about Greg Judy for the first time. And so I went to go work as an intern for Greg Judy. And I still, looking back, I'm so grateful to him for choosing me. I don't know why in the world he would have chosen me. I'm sure I was like the choice that made the least sense out of all of the applicants. It's a very competitive thing to get into, but he definitely put me on the path that I'm on now. So Greg was my first introduction to what we call regenerative agriculture now. I don't think that word was even around then. We really, we really didn't know what to call it. But 
Greg taught me about adaptive grazing and about low input, ecologically based ranch management. And so then I I did a bunch of internships in college and after college. So besides working for Greg, I spent a little bit in Montana and then I spent a few weeks in Texas and bounced around a bunch until I could kind of figure out where I wanted to be and nothing really felt like it fit. So I just kind of tucked my tail between my legs and scurried on home for a little bit. And I set up Rhinestone Cattle Company when I got home. And I did a bunch of writing and a bunch of speaking during those years. And I still run into people who remember me from that. And that's really amazing to me. (laughs) I'm hoping to spend more time in the public eye again in an educational sense, because I feel like nothing that I know and nothing that I do matters unless it benefits somebody besides me. So I ran Rhinestone Cattle Company back home for seven years, and the learning curve for the first three years was very steep and exhausting to climb. But as I as I moved forward and my business developed and changed, I came to the point where I realized that was not a location where I could I could really reach my potential or I could reach the business's potential. But what I wanted to do was a much better fit somewhere else. So I quit my job, gave up my rented ranch, dumped my boyfriend, sold all my stuff, and moved 1,500 miles from anyone that I had ever met. And that was the best decision I've ever made. So I moved to Oklahoma in 2019. And it took me a bit of bouncing around down here, too, before I figured out where I fit. But I am just very happy and blessed that it has all shaken out the way it has. So I have just rented myself a small ranch down here in western Oklahoma. And I'm working toward a custom grazing contract, which should be signed here within a few days. And I'm getting started again, picking up where I left off. Oh, exciting. So let's jump back to your interning with Greg Judy, because that's a, well, for one thing, Greg Judy's well known to all of our listeners. Just how was that experience interning with Greg Judy? Well, I just remain grateful to this day that Greg took me on because he set me on the path that I'm on. I don't know how long it might have taken or if I ever would have gotten involved in regenerative ag without Greg, but... It was great working with Greg because we weren't just glorified slave labor like some interns end up being. I've had that experience on internships too. Not great. Greg really just, we, Greg went everywhere with us and helped us with everything that we had to do. And he was right there teaching us the whole time. So we were helping him with things rather than just being assigned to do stuff. And how Greg got his start really is a base. He's the hardest working guy I have ever run across. So when Greg got his start, he was a conventional rancher struggling to hold the family place together. And he was working far upwards of 40 hours a week in town. And so he would come home from his town job, strap on a head glue, and build fence all night long. And I just can't even believe that. Like, I need more sleep than that. I would not be able to function. <laughs> Everything that Greg has and all of his success is so well-deserved. It was really cool to be there in the drought of 2012. So I got to see how Greg handled that drought versus how his conventional neighbors handled that drought. When the drought first started to hit, I got there in June and Greg had already decided to enact his drought plan. 
And so we sold off all of the growing and finishing steers he had. And we also sold off two big pot legs of breeding stock since he had consulting clients that wanted to buy those. And so we destocked it a big way. And then we made it through the entire rest of the grazing season without feeding a single bale of hay, where the neighbors were feeding $100 round bales. And they were still somehow calling Greg crazy while they were feeding those $100 round bales. But okay. So it got to be September and we got the remnants of a hurricane came up from the Gulf of Mexico and it rained and rained and rained. And I remember just standing in Greg's shop at the house, just watching it just stream down the driveway. And the next day we went out to move cattle and that grass was brilliant green already that quick. Oh, yes. Since we hadn't damaged it during the time that we had no moisture. So I loved working for Greg and I really should have stayed a lot longer six months i should have been there over a year to see the whole production cycle and did you say you were out there 2012 yes i was there from june to december 2012 i can't believe that's 11 years ago now wow his book comeback farms i think was 2008 2009 somewhere in there so i was introduced to him through his book and i don't even know where i came across that i guess stockman grass farmer i'm not sure but the first time I heard Greg speak was in 2012. I went to a small ruminants conference at Lincoln University up there at Jeff City. So that's the first time I got to hear him in person, which was amazing. And that's probably, well, it's not probably. At that time, I had meat goats. But because of that conference, we decided to try hair sheep from what Greg said and from what everyone else there was saying. How did you come across Greg, Judy? This is kind of a cool story. Like, you look back over the course of your life, and you can probably pinpoint just one or two moments that defined and changed the course of the entire thing. Say, like, the day that you met your spouse or the day your child was born or something like that. So I had been up all night at this point. I was a uh, junior in college, a second year of college, so sophomore, junior. I got out in three years, but that's another story. So I've been up all night checking cattle for our beef calving management class because none of these conventional cattle could figure out how to calve without assistance. And so we had to be there checking them every three hours just to make sure nobody had a calf stuck. I learned later on that it really doesn't have to be like that. But anyway, so it was about six o'clock in the morning and I was smoked. Last thing I wanted to do was be awake. But then I remember there was this conference going on in town, and I had kind of wanted to go. So I'm sitting there trying to decide, do I catch a few more hours of sleep before I have class, or do I go down there to that conference and catch a little bit of that? So I decided not to be lazy, and I went down to the conference, and boy, I am glad I did. So I walked in, and there was a guy named Greg Judy giving a keynote address, and he was standing up there saying, you don't need a tractor, you don't need grain, you don't need a whole feedlot and all the infrastructure that comes with it. You don't need all of this stuff that Beef Magazine says that you need. And I was like, wow, I've never heard anything like this before. Like, we really don't need that stuff? And this message really resonated with me because I am a first generation. I don't have somebody's operation to take over that's already set up. Like, I was going to have to start from nothing. 
And it was going to be kind of interesting trying to convince a banker that they should lend $5 million to a 21-year-old college graduate to start a feedlot and hope for the best. And so I kind of, but I kind of really didn't have an answer to that question. How is somebody brand new right out of school supposed to start a livestock production operation from the ground up and make it work? But Greg was the first one who really could provide an answer to that question. And so I knew I had to go work for this guy. I mean, I had to figure out what, I had to know what this guy knows. So I went up to him after that conference and just begged him. I was like, Greg, I need to come work for you. And so I applied and he chose me and the rest is history. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. I would have to say for one, it took me longer than three years to get through college. So that explains more. I probably would have slept in that morning. So excellent job to take that initiative and and go listen, look how it's affected you. So you, you intern with Greg, what? And you were there six months, I believe you said. What was your biggest takeaway from your time there with Greg? Well, for the first time, I felt like I could actually go out there and start a grazing operation and have some clue of what needed to be done on a daily basis. I remember we were cutting brush one day, and I had another one of those moments where the light bulb just kind of comes on. So I had been thinking up to that point, okay, well, I'll get out of this internship. I'll have to go work for a few years and put away some money, and then hopefully I can start ranching. But one day we were out there cutting brush, and I just stopped and thought, wait, I don't have to wait. Like, I can get started right away on, like, a really small scale. So I still have these three pink pieces of paper where I got back to the intern camper at the trailer and I wrote, I wrote down a few just preliminary calculations, like how much land would I need if it could grow this much dry matter? How many head of livestock could that support? How much money was it going to take to buy a couple head? So that was kind of how I got, got started. I think I may have totally missed that question though. What was it that you actually asked? Just your biggest takeaway from your time with Greg Judy. Of course, just what you said, just, yeah, just, just that belief in, and you can do it. You know, I, it, his comeback farms, I think is, is so beneficial to someone wanting to get started because it talks about how to do it with, with low capital and just having the motivation and ambition to get out there and do it. And yeah, I think that's a, a wonderful thing to come away because you got to believe in it. It's up in my part of the world and even through college, I mean, nobody really talked about leasing and custom grazing. So these were two totally new concepts to me. And maybe if I had grown up on a dairy farm, somebody would have talked about renting land. But I just kind of thought that you had to own land and you had to own livestock. And that was a pretty big obstacle. But then what I learned from Greg, you don't have to do either one of those things. I was like, wow, this is a game changer. So I followed his model when I got started. I found some land to rent and I found a small herd to custom graze. And that's what I'm doing again now as I'm restarting down here in Oklahoma. And that brings up a a question that we have that gets brought up all the time. Finding land to lease. How have you gone through that process to find land to lease? Well, my cousin is a CEO of a really, really big marketing company, like the company that does the marketing for Pizza Hut and Taco Bell, kind of a big deal. I remember he always told me when I was younger, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Not politically correct to say that at all, but life really does run on connections and on relationships. And so the best way to find land is through somebody you know. 
And even if you don't know somebody, you can get to know someone. So when I started looking for land, I didn't have any luck in my immediate hometown area. It was not an agricultural area. People were not familiar with the concept. Nobody knew anything about livestock. Nobody wanted to know. I actually found out that like, I was going around and leaving like pamphlets and business cards on some people's doorsteps and stuff. I actually found out that they had been, they had started calling down to the town hall wanting to know about this scam that was going around. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe we need to find a different area. So I ended up finding land about an hour south of there in an area that still was very much agricultural. A lot of Amish people living down there. There are some old dairy farms left. And problem was, I didn't know anyone down here. So how was I going to find land? Seems like everybody rents land from their neighbor or from a family member. So all you got to do is find one guy to be like your tour guide, like your second Julia. So I made friends with one guy down there and he's like, oh, well, uh, this guy's really old and he's looking for somebody to take over. Um, these folks live out of town and uh, this guy rents their land, but he's not going to probably do it again next year. And so you need somebody to kind of give you the inside scoop. There is also a concept of public land, not so much in the eastern U.S., but in the west. So there's BLM land, Bureau of Land Management, there's Forest Service land, and in Oklahoma, as well as I think some other states, there is school land. So in Oklahoma, um, there's parcels that every year they have an auction and you can bid on the lease for these parcels. And so when you bid, if you're the high bidder, you get that lease on that parcel for five years. And then at the end of that five years, it goes up for auction again and you have to be the highest bid again if you want to keep it which i mean there is pros and cons and ups and downs of doing that kind of thing it could rub some people really the wrong way if they have had a parcel for 20 30 years and some newbie comes in and bids it away from them not a great way to get started off with your neighbors but it is an option i thought about doing that but then I um, took some of the auction reports for these school properties and calculated the dollars per animal unit of 4-H carrying capacity that people were bidding and some of them were just ridiculous. I'm thinking, these guys clearly do not know their numbers if they are bidding that. <laughs> but yeah, public land is, is an option as well. And public land's not something that comes to my mind readily. Or even the school land, I'm sure that's more the case in western Oklahoma. I say that, I just know it's not in my portion of Oklahoma. I haven't been. I haven't looked for leased land for the, very far from my house. If anyone's wondering what school land is, they call it school land because they take the proceeds of that auction to support the school systems. If someone was interested in school land, where do you find out about these auctions? Well, in Oklahoma, it's run by the commissioners of the land office. And so you can just look up on, you can look up on Google, commissioners of the land office, Oklahoma, and it's a state agency. And they're the ones that administer the school land leases. I know that New Mexico has the same thing. I'm sure a bunch of other states do as well. And you can contact your Forest Service or Bureau of Land Management in your county. You can talk to your probably NRCS or Conservation District, Soil and Water People, uh, University Extension People. I mean, they would all know if there is something in your state or in your area that exists public land wise and like how you would get a hold of the right people. Very interesting. Not something I think about, like I mentioned before, but could definitely be a good option for some people. As we jump back to to your ranch and getting started, 
you were able to find some land to lease and you tell us a little bit about what you had to do to the infrastructure to get it going. Well, the property that I ran for most of my time, the Northeast, was one that I was just driving into town and get groceries one day and I took the back road. So I'm like, well, well, you know, I've never been down this way before. And I drive down that road and there is 180 open acres, an abandoned dairy farm that is just sitting there. And I said, wow, that's who I'm looking for. I need to find out where those people are. And there was a family still living there, but they weren't operating the farm at all. So I asked around town, I was like, who owns that place? And what's the deal with it? And then I found out who they were. I stopped and talked to them. I said, hey, I'm looking for a place to rent. I mean, if you guys would be open to talking about it, let's talk about it. It helps if you can say, oh, well, I have a couple other parcels around town or, you know, I'm somebody's kid or somebody's spouse, you know. But then again, that's not always a good thing. I found that out the hard way, too, is that you don't just want to drop names without finding out what that person's reputation is, because there are some people you don't want to be associated with. And just equally as important, you need to ask around town and check references on people you're thinking about working with before you sign anything. That could have saved me a lot of money and a lot of treats. But in terms of infrastructure and setting my place up, certain areas of the country have places that usually come with a lot more infrastructure than others. So when I was in the Northeast, it was just basically abandoned cropland that had gone back to grass and there was a dairy barn, but there was no fence and there wasn't very much water infrastructure. There was one water faucet on the side of the dairy barn, and then at the other end of the property, there was the old homestead, which had a well. And that old homestead is where the 90-year-old landowner was born, so that was pretty cool. That place had been in their family for five generations, and it's still in their family. It's really pretty cool. But I had to build a perimeter fence around the whole place, 20,000 foot of fence, since it was 180 open acres, but it was a really irregular shape. Ins and outs, corners and ups and downs. It was not just a square. So I put up three strands of high tensile on solid fiberglass line posts. They were inch and a quarter posts. Three strands, the top two were hot. And so I got that done. And then I used poly wire around the entire rest of the interior. And then in terms of water... Uh, the guy had a son who is a disabled war veteran who was living on the place, and he has a backhoe, and he would sure like to go dig holes in the backhoe for a case of beer. So I had him go dig a bunch of test holes around the property to see where I could get water. So, and I had such a small herd, turns out these test holes were big enough to use just to water livestock out of. And there were some broken terraces that held water at certain parts of the year, so... Obviously, on a rented place, I'm not wanting to throw a whole bunch of permanent infrastructure at it. And so I had movable tanks and the fence, all the perimeter fence that I built, I put it in the lease. This fence belongs to me. So you can either buy it from me at the end of the lease or I'm going to pull it up and take it with me. That was an important lesson I learned from Greg as well. Because Greg had a guy that signed a lease with him basically just to get Greg to build a fence. So the guy signs the lease, Greg builds the fence, and then the guy kicks him off. And Greg goes, I don't think so. And Greg went out there in the middle of the night and tore out all that fence. Man, that landlord was angry. But then Greg just says, look at your lease, buddy. So I, I put in a lease that anything that I bring on the place is mine. I know that Greg talks about in his Comeback Farms on the lease 
farmer agreement about that wire, that fence put in there in the agreement that's yours. Uh, just a similar situation here. I had a neighbor rent 90 acres down down the road from me, and I helped him put in a bob wire fence on that. And he barely got it finished and barely had cattle on there, and they ended his lease. So they they kind of did the same thing, except he didn't have anything, and they got the good fence. It's still there. Yeah, I'm just very lucky that Greg told me to look out for that kind of thing because starting out with no background in agriculture, that's not something I would have even thought of. But then in terms of infrastructure, so I've had to do a lot of infrastructure set up on this place up in the Northeast because there it wasn't set up for grazing. It was set up for confined dairy cattle and cropland. So dug a bunch of test holes for water and I had some movable tanks, put up a perimeter fence, used polywire. It would have been really nice if I had run at least one or two single interior permanent hot wires to run that polywire off of. It was such a small place I could get along with not having that, but it sure did take some time. And then it's been a lot different down here in Oklahoma because Oklahoma is cattle country. And most places that you could rent or buy down here to run cattle on will have a fence, they'll have water points, they'll have a corral. It's been so nice. And the landlady that I have now, like she actually operated the place by herself before we partnered up and she has been willing to step up and pay for some interior hot wire divisions. And I'm just not even used to being treated this good. It's it's great. It makes a big difference which kind of a person that you work with. I mean, your landlord relationship and the deal that you make is going to be a lot different, whether it's a landlord that knows anything about agriculture or has been involved or hasn't. Depends on what their goals are for their land. It's a big difference between someone who just wants to make the least money versus someone who cares about the ecological state that their land is in. And when it comes to negotiating lease contracts, another important lesson that I learned was that just because it's a lot of money to you, it could be nothing to them. Like money does not mean the same thing to two different people. So I thought I was paying, I had a past landlord that I thought I was paying a lot of money and they really should just be kissing my butt here. But they did not see it that way. I mean, my lease payment that was such a big deal to me was a drop in the bucket to them. And I was more or less expendable because they didn't need me. I think I have a few leases that run the gamut there. I've got one that I use and they're, they're concerned about the land, but they just don't want it abused. And then I've got another one that's out of state, and I don't. His concern is the money. And I have another lease that's out of state, and I mail him the check, and it may be a month before he cashes it. He's never in a hurry to cash it, which if I got that kind of money, I'd be in a hurry to cash it. For real. I'm always in a hurry to cash checks because I don't want to forget about them and spend money and have a bounce. The whole land leasing thing is just so much about relationships. I was not a very good people person for a lot of my life. And I really just kind of was hoping that, hey, if I can write them a check, I wouldn't have to be a people person. But then that got proven wrong. What I just said about the whole thing where money does not mean the same thing to different people. So this whole land renting and custom grazing thing really revolves around your relationship to your business partners, please don't slack in that respect. You need to put your blood, sweat, and tears into that. Is I have a really good relationship, a really close relationship with my landlady now, and 
I met her through work, actually, and I work as a regenerative agriculture consultant. And so I met her as one of my clients and I noticed that she was struggling running the place by herself and I was looking for a piece of land. And so I said, hey, maybe we could make a deal here. But we had a good relationship from the start, and that has just made all the difference. And landlords will be probably willing to go a lot farther for you if they like you as a person and if you're friends. Because I got my lease in Oklahoma for cheaper than she has been offered. Like, she's been offered more money for that place than what I'm paying, but she would rather have me run it because she knows me and she trusts me. And I'm dedicated to the same kind of management that she wants to see happen on the place. She said, oh, yeah, I could rent this place for 20, 25 bucks an acre, but I know they would overgraze and destroy it. Yeah, that relationship is so important. And you brought up something just a while ago. That relationship's important with your leasing the land portion, but you've also got the opposite side where you're custom grazing. So you've got that relationship with the livestock owner. Yes, I mean, the livestock owner needs to trust you and have confidence that you know what you're doing. And my uh, custom grazing owner is actually someone that I met through Rodeo. We have yet to sign our contract, so this is all pending signatures actually hitting the paper, but he seems at this point like he's going to be easy to work with and we're on the same page about a lot of stuff. So it's kind of funny, like Greg Judy, I am starting out down here with Rodeo Stock. As Greg did a bunch of custom grazing with Rodeo Stock when he started, and so I'm going to be as long as things work out, taking on a whole bunch of young bucking horses for the winter. I'm really excited to do that because I actually ride bucking horses for fun. And I own a few bucking horses. And but I am kind of nervous about managing a large herd of young horses because I feel really confident with cattle. I feel like I know cattle inside and out. But horses, I mean, they are different. And that's my primary concern is them running through hot wires. But I feel like if I give them enough space, especially during the training period, and I make sure that wire is highly visible, maybe thicker, brighter white wire or putting in more posts along the metal wire that they should hopefully be able to see things before they run through them. And that'll be interesting to see how that goes for you, because, you know, it's been mentioned numerous places, but of the animals, livestock animals that that really I mean, they all need rotationally grazed and and managed. Horses, a lot of times, get stuck in a few acres next to the house, and they graze that pasture down. So I have looked for someone using regenerative practices with horses to get them on the podcast, and I have not been very successful with finding someone thus far. So I'm excited to see how this goes for you and what you learn from it. Yeah, I can report back in a few months and give you a lot more information. I'm not sure if Greg Judy ever did horses. I know he had rodeo bulls. He has a great story about the bull owner trying to relieve himself in the pasture and getting freight trained from behind by his bull. But (laughs) yeah, I will have an update on the horses. I know that Nicole Masters has a module on her website that you can take and watch that's about adaptive grazing with horses. I have a colleague who is a rangeland specialist lives up around uh, Nevada County that he firmly believes that horses should be dry lot and fed that they are so destructive to grazing lands that they shouldn't even have access to it. But I think that if you manage them carefully and intentionally that they can be a, they could be a source of income and 
we had grazing animals with all different types of mouth parts, different grazing habits, forage preferences, and digestive systems. So the multi-species grazing is really, really important, I think, for long-term long-term economic efficiency, a grazing property. Not to, man- not to mention the ecological maintenance as well. So I am actually hoping next year to start experimenting with sheep and goats using virtual fence collars. I really want to have sheep and goats now, but the fencing thing is just kind of daunting. But there is a company called No Fence, and they're out of Norway. They are well-established in Europe and overseas, and they've been doing pilot herds and test projects in the U.S., but they're actually going to roll out a sheep and goat collar commercially, they said, next year. So I will be first in line to get some of those. I find those virtual fencing products very interesting, uh, depending upon cost, because you start thinking about even, I've just got a little tiny goat herd of 10 does, making it cost effective because by the time you buy the collars and other things, that's not enough animals to really make a difference. But you start getting into some large number animals and the price, it's, it gets up there pretty quick. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that technology continues to mature. And as most technologies, as it matures, it gets cheaper. I've been following the virtual fence thing with great interest. Oklahoma State University, New Mexico State, Colorado State, I believe. Like There are tons of universities in the Western U.S. right now that are doing research projects on virtual fence. And so right now there are two companies that I know a lot about. The first one being No Fence that I talked about. They are they have optimized themselves for smaller herds and smaller acreages. And so they do they don't have any type of base station or large infrastructure investment you have to make up front. They charge they charge but two three hundred dollars for each collar, but you own those collars. They have solar charging capability on the collars, so those batteries recharge themselves. You can also recharge the batteries and reuse them instead of buying new batteries every time they go dead. Collars for sheep and goats as well as cattle, and they're not currently commercially available in the U.S. They are hoping for the sheep and goat collars to be rolled out sometime next year. But you can have as few or as many collars as you want, as most of their test herds and the herds that's being used in now are small and in the eastern U.S. There have some projects out west, but they are really trying to hit the small operator market. And then um, there is a company called Vents. They are commercial in the U.S. right now, so you can go out and buy their system. But they are very well suited for large operations. Because you rent the collars from them for $35 per collar per year, so that's really cheap. But you have to buy a relay station, and that is between seven dollars and $12,000. So you need to be, have a somewhat sizable operation to swallow that overhead cost. Um, it works very well in places where you don't have good cell phone service, whereas no fence, you really do need to have cell phone signal, at least semi-reliably for that. The vent system is very well suited for large rangeland acreages in the western U.S., so it's been used on some forest service and BLM land and on places where you have 100,000 acre pastures. I mean, just the increase in 
forage utilization and stocking rate from having some type of managed grazing in place will more than pay for that. And there are more companies also that are either operating overseas right now or are fixing to launch in the U.S. And so there's going to be more and more options coming to the market. So I personally am really interested in virtual fence because I travel a lot. And my job takes me all over the state of Oklahoma and I rodeo all over the western U.S. And so if I can move my cattle from my phone or from my laptop while I'm in North Dakota or... New Mexico or wherever I want to be, that's a game changer for me. Oh, yeah. I, I can see how it could be hugely beneficial. And while um, I'm not traveling extensively like you are, I've got an off-the-farm job that likes to keep me busy. And there's some days it's tough to get out there to move stuff, move animals. Of course, you know, I try and plan ahead so it's not a problem because I'm not Greg Judy. I, I got to get my rest. Those virtual fencing tools hold tremendous promise for so many people. Is it my consulting work? We just hear so often, oh, I can't do adaptive high-density grazing stuff. That's so much work, which really it's not. But if we could take that excuse away from people, think, hey, you can do this from your armchair. You don't even have to miss the OSU game for this. <laughs> Back when I was in New York, I was working full time and I was running my ranch by myself. So my average day was that I would get up and drive about an hour and a half to work. And I was an artificial inseminator on dairy farms. So I would go hit a whole bunch of farms, heat detect and breed a bunch of dairy cows. And then I would drive about anywhere from an hour to two hours to my rented property because I was trying to stay away from the dairy farms. Then I would go and hopefully get my cattle moved before dark. I mean, some days I was really pushing it and it was stressful sometimes, but I would get my cattle moved and then I would go home and get home probably about nine, 10 o'clock at night, hopefully sleep a little bit before I got to get up at six or seven the next morning. So do not try and tell me that this adaptive grazing thing is too much work. If I could do it driving by 500 miles a day with a full-time job by myself, I do not want to hear your excuse. Yeah, but... Like you said, so many people say, well, I just can't do that each day. It, And like you point out, it doesn't take all that much time each day to get it done. No, and what I usually tell people is that you should start by rotating your cattle however often you check them. So say that you check them every three days. Because every time you go out there, give them a new break of grass. That way you're not out there any more frequently than you would be otherwise. And then once you kind of get the hang of it, it becomes really quick and easy, then you can step it up. And the other thing I hear a lot of is people say, oh, I would never have the time to do that. It's because they have five, six, seven different herds of cattle scattered all over three counties and they have, their parcels are all really broken up. And I had that for a while. I mean, not to that degree, but I had properties that were not contiguous, that were on the opposite, opposite side of town from each other and didn't take me very long to put those herds together and just hire a trucker, take them a few miles back and forth every couple months. It was not worth it to me to have to have two mineral feeders, two four-wheelers, or have to truck my equipment back and forth every day just to check on everybody. Having two different sets of polywire posts, and that just would have not worked out. So combine your herds, folks. Even if you got to truck them between properties, 
And that kind of leads me to another point is that maybe you don't need all of these different scattered properties everywhere. If you were maximizing the forage yield of some of your properties, maybe you wouldn't need the far flung ones. Because everybody is just so caught up in this paradigm of you have to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And you think that in order to get bigger, you have to get more land. Not necessarily. I actually backed out of signing a third lease back up north when I realized, you know, I don't need more land right now. What I need to do is get the land that I have in top condition to where it's growing as much forage and it's holding as many head of livestock as is possible because my overheads won't go up. It won't, it'll be less driving around with a four-wheeler and less making lease payments if I can just take a little bit of money and grow more forage on the place that I have. That place that I had up north really needed some lime and needed some weed control. Like, I really should have attacked those things. I left money on the table because I figured that I didn't want to buy any inputs or put any soil amendment money in. I wanted to wait on the livestock to do it and renovate that property through the mob grazing, which it, w- it definitely improved. It definitely was happening, but I left a lot of money on the table waiting for that to happen. Sometimes you should just spend the money up front just to get to your maximum carrying capacity sooner and make more money for those subsequent years instead of spending those years waiting for your land to improve. Sometimes it's worth the money. You know, I I think you bring up a couple of interesting points there, excellent points. You know, combining your herd, I've done that at times and then I'll split them up because I've got some lease properties that are not next to each other. I've walked them between properties, trying to follow Greg Judy's cattle drive. I ended up just the other day combining them back into one herd again, because that's what I really want to do. It makes management on my part easier. I got one place. I put up my poly wire. I'm done. I'm not having to travel 15, 20, 30 minutes over to another property and do it. So, I'm trying to figure out that getting them, I would like to walk them between properties and it's not that often. I think it's just me getting out of way we've always done stuff, you know, and I think a lot of people struggle with that. Oh, and I do too. I mean, us in the regenerative space, we talk so much about avoiding paradigm paralysis and not doing it the same way everyone's always done it. But it is so easy to just fall into the way that you've done it for the last five years. I started thinking recently about going to virtual fence and then I caught myself thinking, oh, you know, we should just stick with that poly wire. It's safer. You know, we already know how to do it. And then I caught myself. I said, hey, do not fall into the poly wire as a paradigm. Do not get stuck on, like, just because no one else is doing it doesn't mean that it's your stopping point. Because you really get, it's really tough when you are a one person show to just like be mentally honest with yourself and to police yourself and It's great if you have a spouse or if you have a business partner or advisor or a consultant or somebody to go to, to kind of keep an eye on you, keep you in line. I really had to keep myself in line a few times. And it was a really difficult decision when I decided to shut down up in the Northeast. It was, it was a pride thing. So people are going to think I went under, you know, but it, what, what happened was that my business had evolved to a point where it made sense to change location and... It was going to take a few years to do that. And I needed to, I, I needed to make the hard decisions and keep emotion out of it. People tend to make decisions on emotion and then rationalize with facts. 
people don't make decisions just based on cold, hard facts. So you kind of got to be like vigilant with yourself about that. Very true on that. We we see that all the time with emotional decisions and, and really when you got to stop and and look at the facts and figures to come up with stuff. You know, even when I work with my dad with him on his cattle and there's things he's kicking around the idea changing his calving season, but it he's he's likes it where it is now. He's just thinking maybe he could make it could be more efficient and he wouldn't have to feed so much and and feed so much hay and then he could maybe make a bigger profit doing it the other way, but he's always done it this way. So he's kicking it around. He it's it's a tough decision for him because facts and figures said one thing, but his emotions are saying, Ah, but I like this. This is what I want to do. Sometimes you don't realize how much you like the new way until you try the new way. So I've never heard of anybody who switched from winter calving to like actual spring, late spring, early summer calving, and then went back. Never heard of anyone doing it. Well, I didn't grow up in agriculture, so I kind of skipped a lot of the emotional and mental things that go along with multi-generational agriculture and operations. Things like worrying about what your neighbors think of you, having a reputation to uphold, or like not wanting to be the one that loses the family operation. Like I kind of skipped all that, but now that I'm kind of getting back in, I'm starting to experience some of these emotional things that are very big deals to a lot of producers. Like I'm starting to, like after my first three years, when things finally started to get a little bit easier, I was finally starting to figure things out, get my head above water and not be panicking and stressing every day. The last thing I wanted to do was make another change and risk going back to that place where I was not confident and where I was worried and learning the hard way. So it can be, it's very easy to not want to make life harder on yourself than it has to be. Like going with what you know is the safe option and safety is nice. And when it comes to your neighbors thinking you're crazy, I mean, I've started to experience that too. Finally coming down here is <laughs> up in the north. I really didn't have very many neighbors around me that were Amish. And agriculture wasn't really doing so well in that county or that part of the state. So that's why I was able to find land that was just sitting around doing nothing. There weren't that many other producers out there. But now down here in Oklahoma, there are tons of ranchers around. And you share your fence line with other cattle all the time. And all of your neighbors have an opinion. I just heard through the grapevine already that my my landlady has a reputation for being a little bit different because of some of her regenerative viewpoints that the conventional neighbors don't share. And there was a person that I was talking with and they were like, oh, you're renting from that person? That person is a little bit crazy. And then I was like, oh, why do you say that? And then this lady starts talking about, well, she cares about this regenerative stuff and the soil health and this crazy. I was like, I'm crazy too. And this lady just goes, oh. I was like, oh no, me and her are the same kind of crazy. So yeah, if you're one of my neighbors that think I'm crazy and you're just waiting to see what happens, stay tuned. Season two is about to come out. I'm getting virtual fence collars next year. That'll be exciting. And you know, as you, you say that about your, your neighbors and the way they look over here, I don't know what they say about me. I'm, I'm not too concerned about it. I'm sure they, they, they think I'm crazy. Except what I don't understand is how do they look across the fence and see I have so much more grass than they do year round? Everybody has been eyeing our grass with interest this summer. 
is that the place that I am renting, it was grazed last winter and it has just been sitting stockpiling all summer. So there is just a tremendous quantity of grass on there. And the neighbors have been eyeing it all summer and asking her to rent it. And they're like, well, you would have grass like this too if um, you didn't set stock all the time. Like when it comes to people thinking I'm crazy and wanting to talk, like, if you're not willing to get out your Schedule F and your farm uh, profit and loss records and compare that with me, I don't want to have a conversation about who's right and who's wrong. Don't take criticism from anybody that wouldn't compare their records with Sound advice, yes. Meg, this has been a great conversation, but it's time we change gears just a little bit and move on to our overgrazing section. In discussion, talk more about the ranch business management. Yes, I love business management. It's really just still kind of shocking to me how many people run large agricultural operations, lots of acreage, lots of machinery, assets, livestock, and don't even approach it as a business. Don't approach it as a business at all, which I know that the whole concept can be scary and overwhelming and tedious and complicated because I've been going through that setting up my new business. It's a pain in the butt. But you know what? I mean, if I am staking my living and my financial security for the rest of my life on this, I think it's worth some attention. So when I first started out, I figured, okay, well, I'm, I rented seven acres. I put like three, four cattle on it. I'm like, I'm just going to wing it, you know? Because I don't really have any experience. I'm just going to do the best that I can to do what Greg did and kind of learn as I go. That was the worst idea I have ever had. Don't wing it, please. Believe your numbers. If it doesn't work on paper, it's not just going to magically work out somehow in real life later in the year. Even if it does work on paper, there is a chance that something's going to go wrong and it won't work in real life. So please don't shoot yourself in the foot from the beginning. I love doing the numbers and the spreadsheets and the researching and the studying and the geek stuff because to me, numbers mean answers and answers mean hope. And even if you're not the kind of person that wants to do that, to do the numbers and the business stuff, get a consultant or hire an accountant or get somebody else to do it for you, but it needs to be done. Where would you suggest for someone just getting started or even someone sitting here listening and they're saying, you know, I've really got to do a better job of that. I've been winging it. Where would you suggest they start? Ranching for Profit changed my life. The Ranching for Profit School. It's an expensive program to go to if you are not a large full-time operator, but they are starting to do some smaller, cheaper, shorter workshops and programs now. So our Ranch Management Consultants is the group that puts on the Ranching for Profit Schools. If you can afford to go to the Ranching for Profit School, you need to go. Believe me, you just do. I went in 2015 and I am going again in February. So I retake it just because they've added a lot of material and changed a lot of things in the past eight years. But definitely get on their um, email newsletter list for the announcements of when they're having their programs. But even also, if you're not, if you don't consider yourself a rancher, Anybody in agriculture, if you're a crop farmer, if you're a dairy farmer, no matter what you do, if it's agriculture related, ranching for profit will be relevant. I promise. With ranching for profit, I think Dave Pratt has written a couple of books. Are you familiar with those books he's he's wrote? I have one sitting right there on my nightstand right now. And I remember what, and I do not remember what it's called. Something turnaround. 
Yes, the turnaround story or... But yeah, Dave Pratt's books would also be a good place to start. Well, that that's why I was going to... That's where I was leading with that. Do you think those provide you a basis to get started till you can get to that ranching for profit? Yeah, I definitely think so. And there's a lot of people in the regenerative community now that are taking that information and passing it along. And also a um, handbook that Sarah came out with from a Sarah Grant. It's called Building a Sustainable Business. And that's something you can get for free from uh, the NRCS, most likely, or you can download that online. And that walks you through step-by-step putting together a business plan. And that is the best suited for existing businesses that need to make a turnaround and also businesses that are wanting to like direct market products or sell a physical product. Since I was, I, I considered myself starting from scratch again in Oklahoma. I had to like rearrange it and kind of change it around to be what I liked, but that's a good resource too. Very good. I'm not familiar with that, so I'm going to have to look that up. And if we can find a link, we'll add it in our show notes. And it is a Sarah handbook called um, Building a Sustainable Business. Okay. Yeah, I've made notes. I'll have to look that up and see. You mentioned spreadsheets. Are there are there any templates you use or have you just developed your own? I really like to create my own. Like I took the ranching for profit method of enterprise analysis for businesses and kind of laid out my own system of keeping records along those lines. And I have done extensive spreadsheets on land costs that I have researched in the area and things like rainfall, extreme weather events, land costs, and stocking rate per animal unit. Like I examined like 10 counties in Western Oklahoma before choosing where I wanted to be. So kind of a data geek. I also have a gigantic OneNote database. This thing is my life's work. It is my pride and joy. I wish OneNote had a word count feature, but they don't. So every time I read or hear or learn something that I think is important and I need to remember, I put it in this OneNote database. And it is categorized by topic, subtopic, and everything I put in there has a cited source. So I know exactly who said it and where I heard it. So I can search this thing and find information about anything that I need to know about. So if somebody wants to know what are the nutritional benefits of, of animal products raised on healthy soil versus conventional, I can just type that in, phytonutrients in grass-fed and grass-finished beef, and that whole thing pops right up. So I want to, if I information about a certain forage crop species, if I want to know facts about soil types, grazing management, animal health, genetics, issues, psychology, education, but there's all kinds of stuff in here. I have a whole list of resources, website links, useful facts. I don't really have a social life, no. You know, I, I am so impressed by your OneNote system. I use Obsidian to do something similar, but it's much younger it's a newer system and i'm just i'm implementing the practice of doing this because i could see after years of doing that the amount of information you have in there and your ability to pull stuff out and put stuff together is amazing i think the the german word zettelkasten let's see zettelkasten i think something like that is that practice which is it's fascinating to me so I think it's wonderful you brought that up because very few people talk about that to me. I started out just taking like 
clippings out of magazine articles and stuff. Like I would circle something, cut the article out and put it in a hanging file folder. But then I could never remember, oh, where did I put that article or who said that, you know? And then these folders got to be pretty big the more I read. So I'm like, we need to streamline this a little bit. Well, very good. That I think that's wonderful. Like I said, I'm using Obsidian to do something similar, much younger process or newer process that I'm in there. If I'd started this when I was your age, I'd be amazed by what I had. I'm I'm impressed with what I have now, but I'm I'm just getting started good. As we go to all these workshops, we subscribe to these magazines, and we spend this money and our time learning, and then it usually goes in one ear and out the other. Like, this stuff isn't worth anything yes. unless we can hang on to it and use it. Right, yeah. There's a whole nother tangent we could go on about memory, memory techniques that I'm fascinated about. But... We need to move to our famous four questions, same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Uh, yes, I stole that from the Bigger Pockets podcast. Please don't tell them. Our very first question What is your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? Well, I have been following Doug Ferguson really closely lately. He writes the Doug's Market Intel blog on Beef Magazine's website. I think Progressive Farmer also carries it known as Mr. Cattlemaster. So his website is mrcattlemaster.com. So Doug is a guru of sell-by marketing, and it is a completely different way of looking at the livestock markets and determining what, what you should buy and what you should sell, when and where, and for what price, and how to guarantee yourself a profit when you buy livestock instead of waiting for when you sell them and it's adaptive to the changes in the market and the world. And I, I really think that I could not have a prayer of succeeding in this industry without understanding and using sell-by analysis and marketing. So I follow Doug Ferguson's work really closely. I, I have started reading some of his stuff. And so, so I think that's very interesting, an excellent resource there. And we will be sure um, to link that in our show notes. Doug teaches marketing schools every so often, a couple of times a year, where he teaches people how to use sell-by management. And I've gone to like three schools at this point from different people about sell-by marketing and learned from like three different people. But Doug's school was the first one that I've walked away from thinking, I understand this and I can do it, rather than thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to be a rocket scientist to understand this. Like, there's no way, like, I, I don't, I just don't get it, but... Doug presents it in a way that you can understand it and use it. Very good. Excellent to know. Our second question, what is your favorite tool to use on the farm? Well, it would probably have to be a tie right now between my four-wheeler and my temporary fencing. I definitely would not be willing to ranch without some type of grazing management control over my livestock. So whether that's virtual fence, instinctive migratory grazing, herding, virtual fence, or um, polywire, physical fence, like you need to have some way to control the impact of your livestock on your land and your forage harvest so, like, without having any ability to do that. Like if, I, like if I just had to turn my cattle out, continuous graze all year long, I would, I don't see how, I, I can't, I can't even. <laughs> the second would be my four-wheeler because I need a way to get around the place quickly and efficiently and carry stuff, move mineral feeders, set up temporary fence. My landlady ran the place last winter, string and polywire on foot, and she's in 
probably her late 50s or early 60s. Like, wow, I do not want to work that hard. I'm sorry, I don't. So I bought this $500 four-wheeler that is actually a year older than I am. I'm 32, so this four-wheeler is 33 years old. It's not much to look at, but it's got it's got one cylinder. It follows a plug every now and then, but it gets the job done. One thing I am definitely taking note of my second time around getting into the ranching business is that I thought I was bare bones before. I'm really going to be bare bones this time. If it rusts, rots, or depreciates, I don't want nothing to do with it. Makes it really kind of difficult to get a loan because they want you to have stuff to secure the loan. But then my goal really needs to be to work toward operating without loans anyway. So let's not manage our place with the intent of impressing the loan off the loan officers. Let's manage with the intent of not needing them. Excellent advice there. And continuing on the advice um, trail with our third question. What would you tell someone just getting started? Well, I've pretty much covered a lot of the big lessons that I've learned, but here's one I have not brought up yet, and it's got to be at the top of the list. Your mental health needs to be in line, and you need to be focused, not just on like an hour-to-hour basis, but one of the biggest handicaps I had in my first attempt at the livestock business before I moved to Oklahoma was that I was suffering from severe depression that looking back, I've had symptoms of that since seventh grade, had it all through college, all through after college. And it really was crippling my ability to run the business to the best of my ability. I just, I didn't realize that I was actually sick. I thought, oh, you know, I'm just kind of going through a rough time. You know, things are going to be hard. You know, he's getting started in agriculture. It's not going to be easy, you know, or once this happens or once that happens, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be fine. But then a bunch of that stuff happened. And I'm like, why am I not happy? And that's when I realized that I actually had a physical illness. Like there are um, chemical problems in my brain that you can't just like tough it out. You can't just get through it. I mean, depression is a physical disease. So I finally got on antidepressants and it has made a world of difference. And I am proud to say I'll be on them for the rest of my life. I don't care. I have no desire to ever get off them. It's a night and day different now. And also, during the time that I was trying to run my first business, and all through college, all through my internships, I was just not focused on that. I was focused on a lot of other things, and I was not giving my career my full attention on like a long-term basis. And it was just, I was just kind of going through the motions while I was thinking about and striving towards other things. So... Make sure that you have got your mental health taken care of and make sure that you are able to focus because I am focused now. I mean, I kind of have the rest of my life in a personal sense. It's kind of lined out and I am eating, sleeping and breathing this grazing business this time. So if you're having problems with your marriage, with your kids, if you're having financial problems, if you hate your job, if whatever is going on, get that taken care of because if you don't, your business is not going to thrive. It's probably just going to end up becoming another problem. Excellent advice on both of those. Mental health is so important, but gets overlooked so often. And then just being focused on your goals and where you're going and being clear about where you want to go. Lastly, Meg, where can others find out more about you? Well, I have a YouTube channel. I haven't posted much on there lately, but it does have some of my conference presentations from when I was up north. So that is Regenerative Ranching with Meg on YouTube. 
And you could also okay. hit my email, mgcows at gmail.com. So mgcows at gmail.com. If you live in the state of Oklahoma, I work for a state agency that does regenerative consulting. I can't tell you which agency because otherwise their PR people would have to review all this stuff. But if you live in the state of Oklahoma and you're looking for personalized advice and support on transitioning to and using regenerative ag practices, and whether you're a grazer or a crop farmer or even an urban food producer or just someone who wants to practice conservation in your backyard, reach out to me. And I, I have colleagues all over the state that can help you wherever you are. And our services are free since we're part of the government. Oh, very good. Wonderful. Meg, thank you for coming on and sharing with us today. Really have enjoyed it. Well, thank you for having me. I, mean, I really hope that this was valuable to your listeners. And I intend to continue sharing my experiences, especially with the horse grazing as we go forward. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. If you've enjoyed today's episode, and want to keep the conversation going, visit our community at community.grazinggrass.com. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for past and future episodes. We also welcome guests to share about their own grass farming journey. So if you're interested, fill out the form on grazinggrass.com under the be our guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. Hey there, listeners. We appreciate you tuning in and want to continue bringing you the best content we can. But producing a podcast takes a lot of time and effort, so we need your support. You can help us out by joining the Grazing Grass community and becoming a supporter for exclusive content and early releases. Also, you can buy our merch to show your love for the show or by using our affiliate links to purchase products or services we recommend. If you can't support us financially, please spread the word and tell others about our show. Thank you for your support, and we can't wait to bring you more great conversations from grass farmers like you. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. 
And until next time, keep on grazing grass. <laughs>